Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Toni Morrison once said, If you can't find the book you want to read, then you must write it. Robert Jones Jr. did just that with his novel The Prophets, written with lyricism that honors the style of Toni Morrison and James Baldwin. This book is among the finest I've ever read. A tender, beautiful love story is central to this novel about Isaiah and Samuel, two enslaved men on the Mississippi plantation in 1850. It's a love story for the ages. And in honor of Pride Month, We'll listen back to my January conversation with the author Robert Jones Jr. later this hour. First, the American artist Charlie Palmer has a wide-ranging career. He is acclaimed as a fine artist, muralist, and illustrator of children's books. Palmer has had extensive work as a graphic designer, and teaching has been an important part of his career as well. Hammond's House Museum will host a retrospective of Charlie Palmer's works titled Departure. The artist joins us now via Zoom. Charlie Palmer, welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very, very excited to have an opportunity to talk to you. I'm a very huge fan. Oh, my goodness. Well, consider it mutual, and thank you. Please tell us what themes you're exploring in the works that comprise this exhibition, Departure. The exciting thing about it is it it is 30 years of work. And so I have always typically worked in, in series, and so it's a very broad range of themes because I started off telling the story or the narrative of the journey of the African, African-American through my own lens. But I think I've kind of gone through areas where I question. Um, I have a, a series called Silent Series wh- where I used American flags and it's addressing the idea of your right as an American to speak out against injustice. Uh, and that was also that was inspired by by Kaepernick's taking a knee, but even further than that, when we talk about John Carlos and Tommy Smith raising their fist at the Olympics, I have a piece, a whole series called Identity Crisis, where we're, I'm really questioning who are you, who are we, and how do we best identify ourselves, especially with some of the labels that we now address ourselves as. It was one of those questions there, but the last two years, it's been flowers. Flowers has been like an ongoing theme throughout the work. Uh, and I actually have a show that's opening uh, in, in Martha Vineyard, uh, Nowhere Gallery in August, and it's called Give Them Flowers, because that, that theme of, I want my flowers while I'm still here, comes up a lot. And it's like, okay, I need to address that because we're, I can pass, go back to the past and address flowers. But what about now? And uh, I can talk about like an award that I just recently received. And it's like, okay, great. I get my flowers while I'm still here. I love your use of flowers in your paintings, and there 
are layers of meaning, too, because at once they're beautiful, these gorgeous representations of nature. Thinking about your Time magazine cover from last year with the little girl and the roses beneath her profile. And those roses convey something vibrant and hopeful, what you say, the flowers while you're here. But there's also something very somber about them that evokes an idea of grief or or mourning. And I read that you introduced flowers after your mom died. Is that correct? That's correct. My mom was my shero. Uh, and she was, you know, she was a single mom at the time. Early on, she eventually married, but she saw that we, none of us had to go through life without, uh, but she made huge sacrifices to do that. But when it came to me expressing a desire to pursue art very young, she did everything she could to make sure I had the supplies, but I also had got the classes that were necessary to take what I was doing to another level. So when my mom transitioned and she passed shortly after she was able to see President Obama get elected, but she passed before the inauguration. And so I went through a depression of a year where I attempted to create, but I couldn't find anything in me. And I created a piece shortly after about a year, and it was a little boy, and he was holding a huge bouquet of flowers. And I realized the name of the piece is uh, Not Enough Flowers. And I realized it was me being represented by this little boy and the fact that I spent at least a year of mourning. And that's where the flowers began. Oh, beautiful. And, and flowers also signify rebirth. Yes, absolutely. You know, I see that for me, Lois, like um, flowers also in my work are used as a distraction. There may be an image where it might be, I, I don't think I've actually done one where there's a lynching and then there's flowers in the corner, but there've been other images that, that are a little bit more negative and then there's a flower in the corner and the flower is an attempt to distract from the reality. And so we're building this real life here, but oh, look at the pretty flowers. And it's like, no, nah, it's, it's, and, it, and it is kind of in a humorous way, but it's also in a way of saying, listen, there are things going on around you every day that you have to be aware of. And so I, I introduce them at times where people may think that's a really odd place to see flowers, but it's like, no, it's intentionally done that way. It's a form of relief from the pain. Exactly. I noticed a beautiful use of flowers in your portrait of James Baldwin. If you get me started with James Baldwin, I just love James Baldwin. And yeah, well, there's I, a lot to love about yes. that man and his writing. <laughs> Yeah, that's the thing about it. It's like I did a year of James Baldwin where I dedicated a series of works for a whole year. That was actually last year. But I, I swore that after I was done with that series, I was done with him. And then something else came up. And then I, there's a, a, a website that posts like vintage, older, never seen photographs of him. And every time I turn around and there he is again. And then there are several books that have come out recently and I'm, I'm learning more about him. So Baldwin is someone that I have to embrace as he's always going to be a part of my life. Well, definitely a worthy muse. Charlie, the word departure has several meanings for African-Americans, in particular within this context of your show, departing from the homeland of Africa, departing from slavery into segregation, departing from segregation into the unknown. What does departure mean for you, and how is that illustrated in these 30 years of works on display? That's a, that's a really great question. Actually, the title came from a conversation I had with the previous director at Hammond's house, where I was explaining two particular pieces, uh, father and son, that I, I did specifically for the show. And they are shadow boxes, but they come with a soundtrack. So a musical soundtrack or a sound that comes with it. And she mentioned, this, this is quite a departure from you. And it's like, you know what? I, I have not been able to figure out what the name of this, the show is going to be until you said that, because that has so many meanings to me, because there are definitely pieces in the show that are very different than what you're used to seeing from me. But it also ties in because 
there is a journey. There's a there's a work in the show called Becoming, and Becoming has four figures in it. And that story is kind of an interesting story because I was we have my wife and I we have two pugs, and we were I was walking the pugs one day, and beside a dumpster there was a uh, a, a stretcher frame. And it was in mint condition and it was just sitting there. And I'm looking at this and saying, why is someone throwing this out? So I took it to the studio and I sketched on it. And then as I sketched on it, I began to understand what I was trying to say. And rarely do I start a piece without having an idea of what I'm trying to say. But Becoming was about the African coming from Africa through the Middle Passage, through slavery, through protests and civil rights movement, and then projecting the future. And this piece represents all of that. And it also comes with a soundtrack. cloth, I incorporated uh, patterns from Ghana, and the flowers that are on the first figure is also West African flowers that are indigenous to West Africa area. And so then it was moving into this man who's wearing this mask, but he is now, he's got in his mask, there is also a slave ship. And so I'm telling the story of the Middle Passage, but then you see it's actually the third figure is a, is a woman, and that woman is breaking or dropping the shackles of slavery, and, and that's a, also a metaphor for our, our mental slavery. And then it's the whole idea of this figure leaning back and reaching out. It's like, now it's like, what's next? And I think that's where like man and some of the pieces that you'll see in the show, it's like, I asked the question as a creative person and as a human being, what's next? I thought about former First Lady Michelle Obama's memoir. That's what she titled her memoir. Becoming, and you know, as soon as you said that, I remembered that, and it's so <laughs> it's fascinating. Every time, like these days, a lot of things keep coming up, and like like we, my wife and I, we sit down and we talk about the idea of communicating with the ancestors, being still, meditation, prayer, because there are things like like John Legend. When John Legend's project came to me, and the name of the the album is Bigger Love, we began to say that you know. Everything that we're doing on earth, meaning every human being here has to understand their existence has more to do with something bigger than themselves. And once you get that, then your your objective, your focus becomes less about you and more about the impact you can make and what what will you leave. And so uh, like, like becoming was one of those kind of things that you mentioning it, I suddenly remember that's where it came from. But when it came to bigger, and then there's a song by Beyonce called Bigger. And she tells you that it's bigger than you, it's bigger than me. And so I understand that as I continue to move forward. It's like, it's bigger than just me and everything that I do. That cover of John Legend's album is gorgeous. And, and it conveys such brightness and hope. And once again, there's a big rose on that drawing. Would you describe it a bit more for listeners? You know, so like, like, so what's ironic about that is like uh, my wife and I really at one point were thinking about making South Africa our second home. And so on my third, our third trip to South Africa was just before the pandemic occurred. And uh, this time I was paying attention to things that I had never seen or never really opened my eyes to. So the actual flower that's on John Legend's shoulder is a potia flower. And it is the, the, the flower of South Africa. And it was a fascinating flower. So I took lots of pictures of it as I did landscapes and everything when I was there the last trip. And, uh, and like I get back to the United States and I get a, a message from Sony saying, John Legend's interested in you doing his album cover. And I'm first, it, and actually it came like two days before April Fool's. And so my first thought was, this is really a cruel, <laughs> like who is going to do this to? And so I called him up and we had a conversation meeting Sony and he said, we'd like to get you on the phone with John so he can explain to you 
uh, what the premise behind the album is. And oh so, my goodness. Yeah, so I'm sitting back and, and he said, oh, but he also said, we're gonna send you the music in advance so you can listen to it. So we had a chance to hear the music before the world did. And I'm like, I was already a John Legend fan. I was already into his music. So to hear it and listen to, there were certain songs that just resonated. But when I got on the phone with John, I told him I, we had just gotten back from South Africa. And he said, that's interesting. He said, South Africa is my second biggest market in the world. And so I immediately started to tell him how I want to incorporate some of the feeling of South Africa into the piece. And that's where the Potia flower comes from. The acclaimed American artist, Charlie Palmer. We'll be back with more of our conversation in just a moment. You're listening to WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free. And at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes, and if you are just joining us, I'm talking with the artist Charlie Palmer about his retrospective of works on view at the newly reopened Hammond's House Museum. The retrospective serves as a bridge between your older works and your newer ones. You've talked a bit about how your style evolved. Am I correct? You use spray paint now? You know what? There's a little bit of spray paint on a couple of pieces, but most part, it's still acrylic on campus. Ah, well, certainly to achieve the realism, you couldn't be using spray paint. I was intrigued with that little video clip that's... On, I don't know if it's on YouTube, but I saw you in your studio, and there was a cover of Stevie Wonder's Superstition play. Oh, yes. It sounded much more ominous than Stevie Wonder's version. Writings on the wall. Baby, superstition. If you if you remember that image though, like that image was done three and a half years ago, and um, someone asked me because it's called unarmed, and so it's a nude black man with his back to the viewer, and then he's standing in front of a bunch of police officers in riot gear, and behind them is the White House, and uh, someone asked me, does was that or did it represent George Floyd? And I'm like, no, I've been painting this kind of subject for a long time because this is something that has been going on for a long time. So that piece was done at least two and a half years before the murder of George Floyd. Mm. I wondered about that because at first I thought, wow, for a retrospective, I thought it was the January 6th insurrection first. Isn't it sad that there could be so many tragic references to what you represent, but three and a half years ago. Three and a half years ago, yeah. And I actually did a piece prior to that called, uh, it was said Unarmed, I'm trying to remember what the other one, the other one had a little boy, a little black child, and he had a little slingshot in his back pocket, and he's standing before a bunch of police officers in riot gear. And uh, it was one of those things is like, 
I'm trying to make, really, I'm trying to make a, sta a statement about the treatment of black bodies. But no, I've, I've been working on that subject for at least 10 years. You have an alter ego named Carlos. Why did you paint under that pseudonym? You know, so, so, so let me see. I'm going to try to make the story short. First of all, <laughs> I did find out that Carlos is uh, Charlie in Spanish. And although my grandfather, my father, and my name is Charlie, I had never cared for the name Charlie. And so I was in Mexico once, and the cab driver asked me my name, and I said, Charlie. He said, oh, Carlos. I'm like, ooh, I, I, I like Carlos. And so uh, it, was, it was at a time that I was also trying to explore something a little bit different in the technique. Uh, I had started to, to develop my career as a fine artist, and I worked a certain style. But I wanted to loosen up. I wanted to play more with abstract, a little bit more palette knife, a little, a lot bolder colors. And I'm like, well, I have people that are now starting to follow who I am as Charlie Palmer. Perhaps I need to explore like this alter ego. And, and everywhere I went, I would explain to people, no, I'm not trying to be another artist. I'm just trying to explore another part of who I am. But you don't paint as Carlos anymore. Right, so Carlos was about 12 years ago is when I stopped. And what had happened was I, I found myself in front of the canvas one day working. And because Charlie's style and Carlos' style was very different, I'm working on a piece and I, I noticed that the two had begun, the, the techniques had merged. And so I couldn't look at it and say, definitely this is a Charlie or definitely this is a Carlos. And at that point, I felt that Carlos had served his purpose. It was to loosen me up to a certain degree so that I wouldn't be tied so much to a photograph as reference, but had loosened up enough that I just let the energy of the spirit kind of create the piece. So that's when I, I let go of Carlos. Uh, one of the striking paintings in this exhibition is titled Man Next. It's a portrait of an African-American man with the silhouette of a ship on top of his head with blue, purple, and pink colors behind him. Would you talk about the symbolism in this work? And so it, the other thing, and it's very subtle because it's also, it's an outline and not filled in. There are flowers in it. There are actually some roses on the, I think it's a, the right side of his shoulder. It is, I think it's a representation of what I've gone through in particular in the last two years because there was a time like, because you'll see stars and you'll see the, the, uh, the galaxy behind him. When Kobe Bryant uh, passed away, it was actually a combination of Nipsey Hussle getting shot and killed in LA and Kobe Bryant dying. It was this whole idea. It's like, you know what? And I promise you this actually happened. But I was saying to my fiance at the time, I'm like, this universe is shifting. Something is about to happen and something big is gonna happen because Things are happening that's going to that's bringing the world together. And so that was, I was headed to South Africa and, and around that time, Kobe Bryant had died. Uh, got to South Africa, had gone to several art shows and I started thinking, how can I make my work speak to the universe? And while I was there and traveling and looking, even looking into the sky, I turned to my wife and I said, you know, black is universal. And so the message is the universe. And so like with the John Legend album cover, you'll see in his head, you'll see stars. In this particular piece, Man First, you'll see the stars again. So it's this whole tie into the, the universe. And also keep in mind, this is pre-pandemic, before the world truly shifted, before the protest of the murder of George Floyd. It was before all of that. And so not to say that I'm clairvoyant or anything. It was that I started to feel a strong energy and I still feel as I'm walk, walking around and hearing like turns being repeated by everyone about getting my flowers while I'm still here, that the universe is shifting and there's more of a conscious awareness of self as well as our role in the universe. And that's what that piece is all about. It's like he's first, but he's not just the presence or the past, but he's also the future. Let's go back to that Time magazine cover. In 2020, you illustrated the cover of Time for a double issue, America Must Change. 
First off, would you describe in greater detail the cover illustration in her eyes? Okay, so to, there's a couple of things. One, uh, the young lady who's in the on the cover is a muse of mine. Her name is uh, uh, Linda, and I have painted her over and over again because she just inspires me. And so I reached out to her mom, who is a great photographer here in the Atlanta area, and said, hey, don't get a camera, just get your phone and get some profiles of Linda, because I know I want to use her for this cover. But if you look at the cover, uh, it, 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 D.L. Pine was the art director for, for Time Magazine. He called me up. He had seen my silent series where I had used the American flag. He and actually sent me a layout where he had taken one of my designs and incorporated just to give me an idea of how he was perceiving it. And so I started to talk to him. I actually came up with several rough ideas. But the idea, if you look at the little child and you see behind her, her hair bond, there are protesters. And so like I was really addressing the idea that I'm a child of the, of the I'm a product of the 60s. And so I saw a lot of protests. I saw the assassination of you know Kennedy's, Kennedy's and uh, MLK, Martin Luther King. And so it's like, but now we're still at a point where black children are fearful of what's going on in our society. And that's where I was kind of trying to address that because I'm, again, a, a bit enraged at the idea that my grandkids have to be fearful of their own country. And so that's all combined to tell that story of America must change in her eyes. Charlie, you are quoted as saying, art should change the temperature in the room. Would you elaborate on that? So that's a, that's a funny story. I said that probably about 14 years ago. I was actually, I, one of the things I try to put a lot of time in, into uh, Lois is this idea of giving back. My mom was very much about passing it forward. If you're given an opportunity, you have to bring someone along with you. And so I mentor a lot. And I was talking to a young artist one day, and somehow that came out of my mouth. And it came out to a point because at the time I was talking, I, was even, I wasn't even conscious I had said it. And then he quoted me and said, Charlie said that light, I mean, that art should change the temperature of a room. I thought it was such a brilliant statement. <laughs> I, was, I was so convinced that I must have gotten it from somewhere. And so I Googled it. I looked it up. I did every kind. I could not find that statement anywhere. So I'm like, I guess I actually said that. But I, to this day, believe that. And when I say that it should change the temperature, art is, a, is supposed to elicit a response. And the response does not always have to be positive. I think that as a creative person, if I create something and you're feeling nothing when you look at it, then I think that as an artist, I have failed. But if you feel anger, if you feel sadness, but if you feel joy, all those kinds of emotions, then I've said something. And so that's kind of what I feel like when you walk into a room of art, it should make you feel something. And so, you know, I'm going to stand by that and claim it, but I really believe that it should change the temperature of a room. The acclaimed Atlanta-based American artist Charlie Palmer, the newly reopened Hammond's House Museum, is hosting a retrospective of Palmer's works, and you can learn more about it on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. June is National Pride Month, and as we continue our celebration, we're going to listen back to my January conversation with the author Robert Jones Jr. His novel, The Prophet, is a love story for the ages about two enslaved men on a Mississippi plantation in 1850. The Nobel laureate Toni Morrison once said, if you cannot find the book you want to read, then you must write it. When I spoke with Robert Jones Jr. earlier this year, I asked if his story of Samuel and Isaiah was a response to Toni Morrison's encouragement. Yes, it is indeed. And the reason Isaiah and Samuel exist is because when I was an undergrad, I was a 
Africana studies minor, I majored in creative writing. And I read so many fabulous works by wonderful Black authors, from slave narratives to books on race theory. And something struck me as odd, which was prior to the Harlem Renaissance, there were never any mention of any Black queer figures. And I, I wanted to address that in some way. So I did a ton of research. And the only references I could ever find prior to Harlem Renaissance time was in Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, which is a slave narrative, where she, in one sentence, very briefly, describes the assault of a male slave by a slave master. And then in Toni Morrison's Beloved, the character Paul D is sexually assaulted by an overseer. And from those observations came a question, what about love? And Samuel was born first and then Isaiah from that one question. Theirs is a love story for the ages. And in fact, that love story reminded me of the love story at the center of If Beale Street Could Talk. Toni Morrison, James Baldwin. This is a dynamic duo, to put it mildly. And in addition to your tributes to them, there are things that pop up which I was hoping you would discuss, such as the significance of the color blue. I wondered if that was in any way a reference to the bluest eye. Perhaps subconsciously, but more at the forefront of my mind in using the color blue was the idea of the blues. So a combination of the dynamic duo, whether it was Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye or James Baldwin's Sonny's Blues. And in addition, the, the bluesy voice, because when I was writing this book, I listened to a lot of old gospel music, so stuff by like Mahalia Jackson. And I also listened to very old blues. So I was listening to a lot of Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith. And those voices imbue a type of secret, illicit joy, but also a sorrow that the color blue matches. And so perhaps somewhere inside me, that message took hold. And here I was writing all of these different types of blues, whether it's the color of the flowers or the color of the ceremonial garb of some of the people in the African chapters, blue found its way in there. Hmm. Interwoven with the story of Isaiah and Samuel are sections written in the voices of seven ancestors. I'm curious about the structure of the novel. Would you talk about how you titled chapters after books of the Bible, but they don't exactly correspond to the narratives we know? When I was in the process of writing, I was in an early draft and I keep a, a notepad and a pen by my bed in the event that something comes to me and I have to write it down because I'll never remember it in the morning. No matter how many times I told myself, just say it out loud, you'll remember it. I never do. So one morning, it was maybe two or three in the morning, I woke up out of a dream and I wrote down something on a pad and I don't even remember what it was that I wrote down. It was in the dark. I scribbled it out and went back to sleep. When I woke up the next morning and took my pad back to my home office to look at what I'd written and, and enter it in, there was a line that said, you do not yet know us. And I thought, but that's a direct address. That's not going with anything that I have previously written. And from that, I said, well, maybe there needs to be chapters that have a direct address. But who would be who would be talking? Who who would have the right to talk directly to the reader or directly to me or directly to the other characters in this way? 
And the answer to that was only the ancestors would have that right. And from that, one of the chapters that I had written in the ancestral voice, they said, this is not the beginning, but this is where we shall begin. That was a question I kept asking myself, well, where shall we begin? And that's when I was led to talk about chapters that take place in pre-colonial Africa. And once I wrote those chapters that took place in pre-colonial Africa, I realized there is a distinction between this Africanist point of view and this Western point of view. And how can I play up that distinction? And one of the ways was in naming and in understanding that the rift that occurs between what we were in these African societies and what we were when we were enslaved was Christianity. And I realized by titling these chapters by books of the Bible, and sometimes not by books of the Bible, but biblical concepts, really impacted the way in which I approached writing those particular chapters, how Christianity and spirituality informed each of those chapters, and how in some ways the characters did and did not correspond. Either they subverted the biblical text or they followed the biblical text upon being named. To say that's multi-layered, again, is putting it mildly. One of the most striking aspects of the novel is how you convey the enslaved people's determination to hold on to or even try to know about their past. Isaiah asks Samuel if he ever wonders where his mother might be and says, maybe when you look in the river, her face is what you see. And then Isaiah tells Samuel about a memory of reaching out for his mother and father and wonders, I'm quoting here, if he is not just reaching for his mam and pappy, but also for all those faded people who stood behind them, whose names, too, were lost forever, whose blood nourished the ground and haunted it. Would you please tell us about the importance of a connection to the past for these characters? It is, quite frankly, the yearning for connection that all descendants of enslaved people feel. Because we were cut off from the thing that is the origin of our thing. And I think Toni Morrison was the one that said, all orf orphans are insatiable. And I'm not sure if that's blatantly true, but I do know that when you are someone who you don't know who your ancestors were, you can only guess at it because your ancestors didn't have birth certificates. They were listed as property along with animals and furniture in records kept by plantation owners. You long to know more about these people who withstood so that you could be here. It, it is overwhelming to think about the fact that my ancestors suffered untold brutality and survived it just so that I could be here writing this book today. I am in awe of that. I feel a tremendous responsibility for that. And I imagined that these characters who were in this lost place, enduring these unspeakable acts, only wondered and fantasized and hoped that they could find, when they escaped it, where they actually belonged. And the first step to that is to wonder, where are my parents who loved me, who brought me here? who I was snatched from. And that's, that's where Samuel and Isaiah are. But it's also kind of frightening because to think about it and then to not know or to know that you may never receive an answer to that question is heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to read, but we must. 
I was hoping you would read some passages. I asked him, the old dark voices, about you. They say you write proud, on your way to becoming a man yourself. Got a lot of your people in you, but don't know it yet. And quick, maybe too quick for your own good. I surprised you still living. I asked him, I say, can you take a message to him? Tell him I remember every curl on his head and every fold on his body down to the creases between his toes. Tell him not even the whip can remedy that. Oh. Okay, so I started crying on page four. I have a soaked copy of The Prophets in front of me, Robert. I'm so sorry. So, no, don't be. It's, it's marvelous. What can you tell us about blood memory? Blood memory is a concept that I was introduced to in my studies in Africana studies at Brooklyn College as an undergrad, where um, it is sort of like this part mystical, part real idea that we actually carry the memories of our ancestors passed down to us through our very blood, that our cells themselves hold on to the memories that we think have been lost to time. That if we're, we are still and we are quiet in our meditative spaces, we can actually remember things that did not happen to us, but happened to these ancestors that they willed into their bodies and passed down to us such that we will always know. That is blood memory. And in fact, at one point you write, who knew blood could talk? The ancestors say, return to memory when you are filled with doubt. Is this what they are referring to? Yes. And they also say, but memory is not enough. And that is their way of saying, you now in this new place must do additional things to ensure that we are not forgotten. You must speak, you must write down, you must do. Because memory, while that is the thing that we gave to you, we realize it is not enough. Samuel and Isaiah first encounter each other as children. How would you describe each of them? Samuel is a much more rugged individual. He is a little bit more angry, a little bit more aggressive, a little bit more uncomfortable with the intense love he feels for Isaiah. Isaiah, on the other hand, is, although chained, utterly free. He finds in his love for Samuel the ultimate liberation. He loves without, without fear. He loves without limit. And his intimacy is deep. There is no shame with Isaiah. There is, he doesn't even understand the concept of shame. And the two of them together, as Maggie calls them, the two of them represent this fraught but highly f passionate and nigh unbreakable bond. And I just wanted to examine the complications and the deep intimacy of the two with those sort of, they, they're sort of the yin and yang of each other and they, they are in many ways opposites but could not function without each other. Yeah. Samuel emanated strength, yet detachment from others, not from Isaiah. And Isaiah has this soothing presence. He smiles. He was sweet with a friend's baby. Though later you write, it was the curse of the soft ones to suffer in all but silence. So his ability to articulate, in fact, makes him feel remorse even 
greater. Yes. Isn't that the way of the world? We, we live in such a fraught, often hard and violent world, and it's those who feel um, the, the most empathetic among us that suffer the most. We see and feel other people's pain in addition to our own, and that is hard. That's a hard existence to live in a world that can be so callous. Robert, what informs the way you depict the characters' thoughts and feelings to their situation? You know, a lot of it is from my own family's oral and discovered history. My grandmother, my paternal grandmother, Ruby, her youngest brother, Herbert, my great uncle, Herbert, did our family tree and discovered or uncovered a beautiful tradition that I, I am a part of and I didn't even know. All of the firstborn boys in my family are named Robert. And I, I was not sure why. It was because the, the very first ancestor, Robert, died on a passage from England to the United States to, to Savannah, where, where my father's family is from. And in tribute, his younger brother named his first son Robert, and every firstborn boy down to me is named Robert. That gives me a tremendous sense of responsibility about thinking about what that first Robert endured, so, such that he left such an impression that his brother said, I am going to name my firstborn son Robert, told his son that he must name his firstborn son Robert, all the way down to my father and to, then to me. Mercy, have mercy. I can't help but think about that pain, that joy, all of that richness of, of, of family. And when I, I write about these characters, I, I listen to them. I am their witnesses. I am writing down their testimonies. And so I must pay the utmost respect. I must use the best active listening I know how. And I must write down whatever I hear, whether it is beautiful or whether it is ugly, as long as it is true. And I think in that, it renders them full and rich and dimensional. Nearing the end of The Prophets, we come to a chapter titled Numbers. It's barely a page and a half long, but extremely dense in content. Please explain what follows the opening sentence, we are the seven. We are the seven sent to watch over you. What is required of you is to look up and remember the star. I'm dealing with here in some metaphorical way, stories that my maternal grandfather, Alfred, used to tell me when I was a kid. He was... Um, almost a lifelong member of the Nation of Islam. He died when he was 96 in, in the year 2013. And he used to tell me these stories about Egypt and the pyramids and how they lined up with stars and how we built those pyramids using ancient mathematics in ways that not even modern societies can understand how to recreate. And that's just me playing with those concepts of blackness as powerful, blackness as engineer, blackness as enduring, and also paying homage to who those ancestors are, the, the seven in particular, as they relate to this novel. I don't want to reveal for the readers who these seven are, but they should figure it out by the time they get to this chapter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but that is them being playful with sort of old Black cultural symbolism. Yeah. Because of its setting in time and place, this story is not easy to read. Yet there's something very uplifting about how the life force prevails in the prophets. Would you please read the passage beginning... His people had that in them. His people had that in them more than Paul's, to abide more, rejoice more, revere more, surrender more. 
climb on top of a golden pyre and burn more. He had seen it in the circle of trees, the way his people swayed, the way they rocked, the way they offered themselves up willingly to the cloudy sky above and the way they sang in a harmony that wasn't rehearsed because people who shared the same bitter lot connected in ways unseen by nature. Author Robert Jones Jr. sharing from his novel, The Prophets. You can learn more about Jones and hear our conversation in its entirety on our website at wabe.org slash City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., the High Museum Curator of European Art, Claudia Einicke, will tell us about the new exhibition, Calder Picasso, which features more than 100 works by two of the most important artists of the 20th century. City Light senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer. And our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Archived interviews and shows are on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Thank you for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.